You're listening to 92Y Talks. Rising actress Brie Larson stars in the critically acclaimed new film, Room, in which she plays a young woman locked in a single room with her five-year-old son since his birth. She sits down with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf to discuss her moving performance, which is already generating Oscar buzz. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on October 22nd, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. I'm going to start off with a few questions about your career, though. Clearly, you are one of the younger stars that we've interviewed in this series. Okay. Um, and 2013 was a hell of a year for you. At the South by Southwest Film Festival, if I'm not mistaken, you had four films. Because in addition to Short Term 12, which won the Grand Jury that Prize. That was at Sundance. And that was, uh, was, that was South- also at Sundance. But no, that was at South by. That was South, South by Southwest. Mm-hmm. And then you and Don John and... The Spectacular Now, and um, it just seemed like all of a sudden, all of these films with you were coming out. Could you talk a little about how you decide which parts to accept? Because my guess is not everything that comes your way is what you want to do, but some roles you want to fight for because you feel that these are important. Mm. Well, for some reason, ever since I was a kid, I've just really cared about the, the bigger arc of a movie and and the two hours or so that that people spend sitting in a dark theater and it doesn't matter if you're there with your loved one or if you're there with 20 of your friends, the second that movie starts, you're completely alone and you become the characters and you go on this adventure with them and I think by the time you, you know get dropped off at the end of it, Hopefully you've learned something about yourself, but what is it that you've learned? Or what are the questions that have been raised? And so there always has to be for me a deeper meaning to whatever film it is that I'm doing. And it doesn't mean that it can't be extremely entertaining, because I think um, like Trainwreck is is a, a wonderful example of a movie that is you'll be rolling on the floor laughing, but then as you're walking home, you're sort of going, whoa, that was pretty deep. There's a way, I think, of through release and through this sense of community of going to the, going to the theater that we're able to retell these very old stories. And so as much as I'm interested in my character and my participation in it, what's more important to me is the bigger scope of the story and how I can help support that bigger story. And has there been a big difference for you between the studio films, because you've done 21 Jump Street with Jonah Hill, who was our Real Pieces guest uh, two years ago, I think it was, and The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg. Um, There's at least one more train wreck you just mentioned, versus you've done these indie films like uh, Greenberg, directed by Noah Baumbach, or indeed Rampart, or in Moverman's film where you played the daughter of Woody Harrelson. Um, is the experience very different, and is even your thought process when you're debating, should I do a big budget film, should I do a little indie? No, the, the budget never comes to mind. It's just the story and, and the people behind it. So you can have an incredible script, like you could even have a script like, like the movie you're about to see, Room. They are about to see it, right? Oh, yes. Okay, I'm not just teasing you. Um, <laughs> you, could, you could read the script and it, and and it requires a lot from me emotionally. And so you, you, you go, okay, so this is gonna require a ton of emotional weight from my part, and I'm gonna have to go very deep in order to play this. Who are the people that I'm surrounded by as I'm doing this? The main one being the director. 
So having a meeting with Lenny ahead of time and being able to discuss with him where he saw the story and the balance that he was trying to play and the importance of keeping a sense of hope and humanity and love being the main core of this, not drama, melodrama, true crime, voyeurism. It's, it's none of that. It's taking something that we've seen already on the news, but turning it into something that's extremely universal. It becomes ordinary. There's something about when you watch the beginning of Room that if you don't know the circumstances, it seems rather suburban. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we, we don't want to give too, too much away because we're <clears throat> going to be seeing it right after the intermission, but it's true that I was very lucky to see Room together with my husband, Mark, before just about anyone in the world, because it was just before the Telluride Film Festival. I had no idea what I was going to see. And as the film began, Mark and I looked at each other, and we wondered, why are they locked in this place? Is it post-apocalyptic? Um, are they too poor and are living off the grid and don't want the tax people to find them? And we realized very quickly how wrong we were. But it's, it's, it, there's a nice sense of gradual or slow reveal yeah. in room. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that but when I you guess, read... I'm sorry, I feel like I didn't answer your, your actual question well, but what in regards to choosing between independent and bigger movies, it's, it's just, it is about the team. And it's also about your mood because we don't want one thing all the time. For instance, I don't always want to go vacationing in a tent in the woods. It's very nice and you can see the stars very close and you grill your own food. But sometimes my vacation, I want to take at the Four Seasons. So it's kind of the difference between the two. There's an intimacy that can't be matched um, in an independent film, but there's also a, a larger support system that comes with an independent film that sometimes is necessary depending on what type of story it is that you're sure. telling. And you know, to be honest, I watched The Gambler this past weekend in preparation for tonight, and I didn't even remember that well, the original from 1974 with James Caan, the James mm. Toback version. More chess But you know, we, my husband and I, we were looking for like a juicy clip with you to include in the reel, and we realized that you really didn't get to do all that much in a studio film that was clearly more concerned with the testosterone-fueled uh, pyrotechnics of the gambler and his debts and his self-destructiveness. So I'm guessing that in some ways, some studio films might give you a bit of notoriety. I mean, you get, you get your name up there on the lights, but you don't get to do what, for example, Short Term 12 really allowed you to do? Well, it's probably similar to any corporate world. Like, you have to work your way up just like anything else. There's very, I mean, sometimes I guess there's rare cases where, like, someone out of nowhere gets to be the lead of the giant franchise movie, but for the most part, it's, um, it's kind of like a stock market with people. I hate to put it that way because it is an artistic medium, but it's a lot of money on the line for a studio, and so it takes doing a small gradual pace, and that small gradual pace is one that I've really appreciated because I've never been cast in a studio movie that has been, um, that has eaten me alive, where I then just become a pawn or a face in something. Anytime, and, and although I didn't have as many colors to paint with in The Gambler, I was chosen because Mark and the director in the studio had seen Short Term 12 and said, listen, we don't have much with this character, but we think you could actually create more. And it was very exciting for me. It was a wonderful experience for me because it was the first real studio movie I'd ever done. 
and I was surrounded by true artists. And it made me think, okay, I don't have to like forever think that I'm gonna be living off of getting paid $800 a week. Like there is a chance that I can live more comfortably in the studio world, that there are movies that are taking into account the things that I care about. Sure, sure. Curious, how many here have seen Short Term 12? Oh, just like, well, all right, about 20. Um, I cannot recommend this film too highly. Um, and maybe just a, a few words about that, because um, it was originally, if I understand correctly, a short film that Daniel Destin Cretton had done. It was a 2008 Sundance winner, and then he does this feature version. How did you get cast as Grace? Because that's a career-defining role, as far as I'm concerned. It, I'm, I suspect that a lot of the film roles you've gotten since then were a function of Short Term 12. Um, did you hear about it and audition? Did they hear about you from some of the earlier work or, or from television? I mean, I had very few credits up until that point because I was actively shooting Spectacular Now um, when I found out that I had gotten Short Term 12. I didn't really have much credits to my name at all. It was sort of a fluke thing that happened where even independent films, and this was a movie that was just the smallest of small budgets, requires bigger names in order for financiers to feel comfortable in making this movie. So they had two really big names attached to play my character and to play the boyfriend role. And like, I think it was like a month before they were about to start shooting, they both dropped out. And so it was this frantic sort of, oh, is the movie gonna get made? Can we do this? But the financier sort of, it was one guy who was a very sweet man and was like, you know what, let's see, who can we find that could really tell, maybe this, maybe this means something. And my agent happened to call the director, Destin, maybe two weeks before these people fell out, oh. saying, because he had read the script, saying, I just want to say this is one of the best scripts that I've ever read. Um, and at some point down the line, I would love for you to work with my client, Brie. I was homeschooled, so my, and my agent and my manager have been my representation since I was like 11. And so I've, they've always had this sense of being like, let's find you some friends to play with. And so I felt like with, they saw Destin's short film, and they thought, oh, this is someone that Brie will be friends with. And so that's kind of why they did the call, where they're like, you should get a coffee meeting with him. You know, The movie's cast, but down the line, it'll be great. And so then when these people fell out, I was the very first person that came to mind because I was the very last phone call. And so um, I, I found out while I was shooting Spectacular Now that Destin wanted to Skype call with me and I had a week. And so I was, it was to play a, a woman who works in a foster care system, which I knew nothing about. So I very quickly researched everything I possibly could, spent every minute of my day calling people. I was in Georgia shooting. I tried to volunteer at local foster care places. I, they all denied me, but I tried. And I told Destin that I had applied and that my plan was to, do, was to volunteer while I was there. And I was able to explain to him that I really understood the system of it and my passion for it. Within 10 minutes of that Skype call, he was like, I would like for you to do this. And I remember clicking and going like, yeah, cool, totally. Like as if it was, 
This happens to me all the time. And I clicked out of the box, and I remember I was in a hotel room, and it was one of those awkward things where they have a desk with a mirror in front of you, which I don't understand. When you're working, why do you want to look at yourself? Every hotel does it. But I just remember clicking out and looking at my own reflection going, is that real? Did that, did that really just happen? And it was the first time I ever got something without auditioning, which was lovely and terrifying because I, we had two weeks. I had no rehearsal time. I had just enough time to basically um, shadow at a foster care place, get it all together, and, uh, and start shooting. And every single day, it was a 20-day shoot, it was just like an absolute marathon. Wow. But it was the time of my life. Sure. And um, was the experience of working with young kids at risk good preparation for room where so much of your dramatic interaction is with a, a boy, a five-year-old boy? Sure. I mean, those kids in Trojan 12 are really extremely talented, and they're, not, they're, they're much older than Jacob is, so it's not... They didn't require anything from me, but... I realized that I enjoyed being in a leadership position, and that wasn't one that I had been in before. I'd always felt much, I'm a rather shy person, and so I never really knew if I wanted to be the lead of movies. I kind of thought maybe I'd be supporting for the rest of my life, and I just didn't know if I felt comfortable being like the face of something. And Short Term 12 became this perfect meeting because I didn't have to be the face of a movie for the sake of being a girl trying to find the guy. It was for the sake of fighting for the safety of these children. And so I got to put that, and, and also my character is struggling with the fact that she's a leader and is completely flawed and thinks, why am I in charge of these kids when I don't know what the heck I'm doing myself? So all of the things that were going on with me became perfect yeah. for, for that movie. But what I gained from that was just that I really liked working with kids, that I find them to be incredibly easy to work with, very exciting, and um, there's just an ease to it. There's no posturing. Um, I, there's, a, there's a girl in Short Term 12 named Caitlin Deaver who's absolutely extraordinary in the movie, and she has a full, like, meltdown in the movie and I have to restrain her. And I remember we did it like four or five times and she was just full crying, screaming, kicking, everything. And I remember after the fifth time going up to the director going, you know, I really think maybe we should go in for coverage now. Like, this is a lot. I, I just want to look out for her. I think this is too much. And he was like, why don't we ask her? And he turned to her and was like, Caitlin, how do you feel? And she's like, this is so much fun. <laughs> and I went, oh my gosh, that is the difference. I have so many more years on her that when I do this, it turns up all of the stuff from my past, and then suddenly I'm sitting in my car going, ugh, I need to go back to therapy. Whereas she has no past. For her, it's just, oh my gosh, I get to have a temper tantrum, and my parents aren't going to tell me no. This is incredible. So, and they can shut it on and off. There isn't this sense of like, and now I need to go back to my trailer. They just... They just get in and they get out. And I learned so much from those kids from that. And, and so going into room, I ended up learning so much from Jacob, similar, the similar thing of, gosh, don't take yourself so seriously. It really looks bad when you take yourself so seriously. Now, you, of course, started out as a child actor yourself. If I understand correctly, at the age of six, you enrolled in the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco 
the youngest student ever to do so. Yeah, you have so, to audition. So I was the youngest at the, at the you time. Just, you knew at six years old that you wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And had you been particularly inspired by a movie or an actor or actress? In other words, where did this come from? I don't know. I know that I know that I was very, I was sort of a sponge as a child, like really took in information very quickly. And I think what happened was I had like burned through all of the VHS tapes that we had. And I found like my mom's copy of Gone with the Wind and sat through the whole thing and then started it all over again and then would not stop repeating lines from it and was like, kept, just kept going, huh. you know, like, Ashley, Ashley. And, and uh, that's as far as it goes. But I don't remember thinking, oh, those are actors and that's a job. But my parents are, were chiropractors. They had to practice together. Uncle's a dentist. My grandparents worked at Dow Chemical. Like, I didn't really have a... We lived in Sacramento. I didn't. I wasn't around the entertainment industry at all, so I don't really understand what, where that came from. I think that's just one of those um, magical gifts that you're given. I think everybody gets them in their life, where you're sort of given given the the code to you. And for some reason, I was given mine at six, and it came out in the sentence, "Mom, I know what my dharma is. I'm supposed to be an actor." She's <laughs> very bizarre, but I'm very grateful to that kid. And it worked. I mean, you, you, and I'm curious also how important theater has been, because I gather at the Williamstown Theater Festival, you played Emily in Our Town. Um, is theater part of this important training? Is it something you want to go back to, or have film and television become your primary media? Oh, I definitely want to go back to theater, for sure. The difference, though, is, you know, a movie... It is very thoughtfully explored, but you don't have the same cyclical repetition. Um, you don't revisit it again every night. So there's something about a movie where you sort of, you spend all this time, like in the case of Room, I spent eight months preparing and creating this character and building this whole thing to then basically, it's like packing a suitcase to go on a train ride. And then you just plow right through and then you get to the end and it's done. Whereas a play, it's constantly losing itself and rediscovering itself. So you go through weeks where something feels off and suddenly you have a new connection to it again and you find it and it's beautiful. I love that. And, and Our Town was such an incredible experience to have that with it. It was my first play ever and a large undertaking to have as your first play. But it's, it's all of life. So to be able to experience all of life sort of over and over again, and as you become more, uh, it becomes second nature to you, you can start to focus on different things and, and you live it. But I don't think that every play for me at, at any given moment has the capacity to say, yes, I could commit to six months of exploration. It has to be something, I mean, our town is, is is a tough one to, to top. I know there are many great plays, but to find one for me that I feel like I'd, I would drop everything and say, yes, six months of my life I want to spend failing and getting back up again and failing again, it, it would have to be about a very big subject matter. Sure. And I just haven't been offered that yet. 
Well, later, we're going to talk about your upcoming projects because I was astounded to see the five films that you're about to have coming out. And Really? I have five? Yeah. It might, it might yeah. be lies. Um, I don't think so. I did my homework, really? but we'll get to that okay. in, in a moment. Um, I, I did them already? Uh, no. Okay. One or two you are about to do, but That's it's been confirmed. Terrifying. I, mean, without I have five projects about it. I have to do? You had said something about, you know, you can't imagine being the head of a franchise, but if I understand correctly, you have been cast as the female lead in Kong Skull Island, which is very big, right? I mean, that's a tenfold kind of thing. Yeah, it's like an independent. Well, yeah, it's fine. It's like yeah. a $200 million independent film. It's fine. That $200 million for an independent, that sounds just fine to me. Yeah, tiny, tiny. Um, and, and also a Martin Scorsese exec-produced um, film. Let me make sure oh, I Free get Fire. this right. Free Fire with Cillian Murphy and Army Hammer. I mean, it's Killian, Killian Murphy. Sorry. I know. I feel the need to correct all of us Americans for calling him Cillian because I thought it was that too. And... He's much more serious than Cillian. It's <laughs> Killian. I got, and I should know that because I really like Killian's red beer, so I'm very embarrassed. Oh, right, of course. Well, Except that it's spelled K. But oh, that's, see? that's okay, then. I was just self-justifying here. Um, uh, <laughs> I was fascinated, too, that you are not only an actress, you're a writer and director. You had a short film called The Arm that won the prize for best comedic storytelling at last year's Sundance Film Festival. No, it wasn't right. last year. It was actually the same year that Don John oh, so and, and Spectacular Now were at Sundance. Oh, so what a year. Yeah. 2013, I can't imagine any year having that Lucky kind 13. Of, absolutely. And another short, Waiting, was in competition at the South by Southwest Film Festival. At the same time as Short Term wow. 12. So the question for me is, would you now want to direct features, or do you, do you feel that you have to focus on the acting because that's so now ballooning for you, but is directing features on the horizon? Yeah, oh yeah. It's not what I want to do, I will. I mean, I have, so I will. Okay, and one other detail that surprised me, you've had a singing career that at the age of 13, you had your first record deal at Universal with Tommy Mottola. And your first release in 2005, you actually did a tour with the... Yeah, that's real. That's not just so, so random trivia. So you really do sing. Have you ever had a role that in a film allowed you to do that? Yeah, I did a film called Scott Pilgrim vs. the World oh, where I played course. a pop star. That's right. Okay. But this is good to know because especially if you're saying that theater is something that you'd someday like to do, heaven knows there are enough musicals on Broadway and off-Broadway that... Uh, you might be more appropriate for than you'd realize. Oh, completely. I mean, that's been my dream since I was a kid. My initial love was theater and took every type of dance class and singing lessons. And I was absolutely obsessed with Thoroughly Modern Millie and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed at 11 years old over Sutton Foster um, and Cats and Les Mis. I mean, those were all the things that I was that I was brought up on. I didn't even really know. I think that's it. I, I didn't really know so much about movies and TV. It was it was theater because in Sacramento we have a thing um, called the Music Circus, where it's at the time. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like a circus tent. It was not air conditioned, and there was porta potties, and it was a circular stage. And it was maybe, oh, it's hard to remember because I was a kid, so time is so warped. Um, but every so often they would do a different musical, and I saw Sound of Music, mm. and I just absolutely fell in love with it. Now they've got this beautiful air-conditioned building and nice bathrooms, but at the time it was sort of hot and stinky and sweaty, and I hadn't seen the movie Sound of Music, so I thought that 
the woman that I saw in Sacramento who played Maria was the real Maria. And so when I went to a friend's house and was like, I saw Sound of Music, she was like, oh my gosh, I have the movie. And I was like, you have a taping of it? And we watched it, and within two seconds, I was like, that is not Maria. Turn that off. <laughs> I saw Maria. That's not Maria. <laughs> Understood. Could you talk a little bit about the United States of Tara? Because I, I, this was actually a very popular show. Apparently, the original idea was from Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And Diablo Cody was the writer, someone we know from Juno. Um, what was it like to play the daughter of Toni Collette with uh, her four personalities? Was that an experience that you felt was also the kind of preparation that you're now using for the other roles? Well, before I booked United States of Terra, Tony was, was my, my hero. I was always very confused because I, I had this, this gut reaction at six years old that I wanted to be an actor, and so I was pursuing it. And it's a very difficult profession, and one that did not come naturally easy to me when it came to booking jobs. And, um, and so as time went on and the more no's you get and, and you're getting older and it takes a lot of sacrifice and suddenly, you know, it's hitting the point where maybe some of my friends are getting ready to go to college and I'm not and acting still not sort of working for me and you have to sort of rethink and keep sort of processing why acting? Because it's a different thing. When you're a kid, you just go, well, I like it. But as you get older, I feel like you really have to start to have a concrete understanding as to what your mission statement is, as to why a life of this? What is the purpose of this? Because I didn't actually enjoy having my face places. It wasn't where I was coming from. And I was terrified by the idea of exposing myself and then being myself in movies, because I was like, well, how? You see one movie, and then you see the second one, and you're like, well, I saw her in the last movie. I don't need to see any more. So I didn't understand how to meld all of this together until I realized who Toni Collette was. Because I would sit, I was homeschooled, so I'd sit at home all day, and I'd watch five, six movies a day. And I didn't piece together that Toni Collette was the same, per like the same person from Muriel's Wedding was the same person from Sixth Sense. And, and it was the same person from The Hours. And it was like all of these things came together for me and I was like, oh, oh that's it. I mean, I don't have to be myself. I can, I can just embody these characters and when I embody the characters, I disappear. And if I can really disappear, then no one has to know about me. I can just be these other people. And so she became this icon for me of what I believed in. It made it very difficult for a very long time because I was never a cliche of any kind, so it wasn't easy to cast me in anything. When you're a teenager, it's a lot of high school movies, so I wasn't pretty enough to play the popular girl. I wasn't mousy enough to play the, the mousy girl. I wasn't a nerd, so who was I? I was nobody until much later in my life where that tool, the fact that I can really transform myself and I enjoy it, has become invaluable to me. And so working with her and seeing firsthand how she works and on top of it gaining her respect and that she is still to this day someone that I call upon, she's like my mentor, my oracle, um, it has been incredible. Wow, that's great. Mm -hmm. Now, Room, um, the novel comes out in 2010 and it's narrated by a five-year-old boy who's never seen the outside world, a book about imprisonment but also about 
a mother's protective love and endurance. Um, at what point did you read Emma Donahue's novel? Had you read it before the possibility of doing the film or only once the discussion began for you to be in it? No, I, I had read it just as a person who likes to read books uh, maybe a year before I, I had the script. And I was floored by it. I thought it was just devastating and lovely and beautiful. And it just made me sob and sob and sob. And um, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, but then when the year, I guess, came when I got the script, um, I didn't immediately think, oh, this is what, you know, I should play this part. Because Ma in the book is told through, it's the book is told from the five-year-old perspective. So Ma is just an essence. She is, there's no real descriptives to her. And Emma does that cleverly so that you create your Ma in the story. And so to me, it seemed like an impossible task to assume that I could be the world's Ma. So I just went down the process and followed it all the way through. So um, Lenny, I don't even think I was on the list of potential people to look at for Ma, but somebody's receptionist handed, said, by the way, you should watch this movie, Short Term 12. You know, it's small, but you should check it out. And he watched it and was like, whoa. You know, <laughs> I love that no casting director knew about me, but the receptionist did. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so because of that, uh, he was quite intrigued by my range. And it was a, it's a dynamic character that shows a great deal of warmth, but also a lot of, a lot of darkness and, and trouble. Um, which is what Ma needs. So we had a coffee meeting that was supposed to just be this like 30 minute, shake your hands, hey, nice to meet you, and it ended up being four hours of just da -da 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 nonstop talking about mythology, talking about possible scenes that could happen that we didn't even think would be in the movie, but just what we imagined these characters were doing in between scenes. And um, I love, um, philosophy, and I was talking about the Plato's cave allegory, and he was sort of going, ah, you get it. Keep that in mind when you watch Room very shortly, because Plato's myth of the cave, which I sometimes share with my students when I show Bertolucci's The Conformist, is so relevant to the experience of especially a child who's been in a room and never seen the outside world the notion of the reflections. I can see why Lenny Abramson would have been very like, taken with you. You, you get it. Um, and so it was lovely. And he showed me pictures of his kids, and he has all these animals, and he had birds. And, and there was just this real sense of love and humanity in him. And so I felt like, oh, this is somebody who's, who's going to tell this story from a place of love and not from a place of melodrama. And, and now that you mentioned, I think one thing we should all be aware of, Lenny Abrahamson himself had to sort of audition to become the director of this film because a lot of bigger names wanted to do it. He's a Dublin-born guy who studied physics and philosophy at Trinity College Dublin, and he has not made any films that could be remotely considered blockbusters, but his most recent one, Frank, starred Maggie Gyllenhaal and Michael Fassbender as uh, <laughs> a guy who constantly has his head covered with a bag. So he wasn't the obvious choice for something like this, but he proved in his letters to the writer, to Emma Donahue, if I understand correctly, yep. that his personal passion, who he was, 
was right for the film. And I guess he understood that who you are, not what you've done in movies, but who you are, was right to play Ma. Yeah, and that I understood the subtext to it, because it has a very deep, rich subtext. And so to have, I think for him to have someone on his side that understood that and that wasn't playing it because they were really excited about doing some voyeuristic crime piece um, about a victim, that this had nothing to do with that whatsoever. It was much bigger than that. Um, but even after that meeting, Lenny was very smart, and he then, from all of the meetings he took, he asked um, a handful of girls to come in and, and audition. And um, I met with him, and we had, I think we spent maybe an hour or two together going over various scenes from the movie. And what worked was that neither of us had any idea what we were doing. And there were too many factors that we didn't understand. We didn't have a little boy there to play off of. I was reading opposite a fully grown woman who was on her knees to try and give me a lower eye line. And there's not enough time in, in the time it takes to prep for an audition to really understand all of the factors that go into being trapped inside a room seven years. So instead of it being this perfect thing, it, it felt more, and I like, you know, I went in and I just knocked that audition out of the park. It was less about that and more about, it was almost like me coming in and being like, hey, I've got this beautiful slab of marble. I think it's going to kind of go like this, but it could go like this. And he was like, oh, good, or I like it like, that. oh, yeah, I like your idea. So maybe we kind of shape it like that. And that's sort of what I'm thinking. And he was like, I like, what, I like this. I like the marble. I like the design you've got. I know it's not there yet, but I can visualize it. I trust you. And I think that we communicate the same way. And so that's, that's where it went from there. Now, you mentioned not having had much rehearsal with Short Term 12. I'm guessing you did have a fair amount of rehearsal for Room, especially together with Jacob Tremblay, the boy who was cast as your son? Rehearsal loose, loosely. We didn't do any, any scene work. It was mostly just um, being in Room, just seeing what would happen. We were very curious to know once that space was built, and we spent a lot of time really, really crafting that space and making it something that felt um, very lived in and very homey for us because it's not a typical set where you can just sort of put set dressing. Um, it's an 11 by 16 space, and every single piece that's inside that room has to have justification and has to have a backstory, down to the rags that you see me cleaning the floor are Jack's old baby clothes, and there are sunspots on the wall from where the skylight has has repetitively hit the, the cork tiles. And there's little bits of cork that have been picked away from where Jack is bored laying in bed, picking away at it. We sanded away certain spots where Jack was constantly rubbing his shoulder, because when we would play, we would notice the, the spots where he would hit. And we go, all right, if he was doing that every day, that would be rubbed down. Um, we collected all of the trash that we would have had in room and made toys. Um, all of these types of things. Um, we sort of all created together with the help of our production designers so that by the time these three weeks were up, room was very special. It was this very sacred place to us. It was very warm. It was very comfortable. It didn't feel claustrophobic. It felt like this very safe, womb-like place for us. Yeah. And, um, well, you'll see in a moment. I, when I watched the film last time, I was so aware that by the end of the film, 
I almost missed room because obviously it doesn't all take place in the room and something happens in the second half as, as you probably know because there are other actors involved. Um, but at the end of the film, it's not just a happy ending because they're not in the room. There's a sense that they still are, or especially your character, is still somewhat imprisoned in hiding whatever, not able to completely live. And I was wondering if you had done any research or spoken to people about the kind of trauma that would result from the situation. In fact, Emma Donahue apparently started writing a screenplay for this around the same time that she was writing the novel. And she was apparently inspired by the true story of Elizabeth Fritzl, an Austrian girl who was held captive 24 years by her abusive father in a basement where she gave birth to a few children who were raised in this dungeon. Um, did you feel that you needed to consult with people in order to incarnate this? I didn't feel comfortable speaking with any victims. Um, I did not feel like that was my place, especially if you Google any one of them, the media has done a pretty good job of, of invading their space, and, and that wasn't something that I was interested in doing. But I was able to read some things online, and, but most of my information came from speaking with a trauma specialist who deals with trauma like this and, and other types of traumas and was able to explain to me quite beautifully how the brain organizes itself and how no matter what's going on in your life, you're constantly shutting off awarenesses of different kinds. So while we're having this conversation, I'm shutting off the awareness of like hearing maybe people talk in the background or worrying about a war that's going on in, a, in, a, in another country or thinking about whether or not what I'm gonna have for dinner. You just shut off certain things in order to focus on the task at hand. So while Ma is in room, she can only focus on what's, what's going on there, which is take care of her son and survive. Protect, protect her, protect him. It's not until she's out of room and is in this safe environment, that's when the survival stuff, all of those other things are put to rest and reflection can come in. And that's when she really starts to grapple with what has happened to her and really has to look at it. And it becomes a very painful and difficult thing for her to really see and one that she does not want to accept as a reality, as something that happened to her. Yeah, right. I also read that there was something in your own past that may have been useful in incarnating Ma, that when you were growing up, with your mother, there was a time that you and your sister and she were quite poor and lived in a very cramped studio apartment. Um, did you call upon any of that personal reservoir in approaching this role? Um, well, I was a kid during that, so my connection to it was, wow, what an interesting experience to relive an aspect of my childhood through my mother's perspective. We don't get that opportunity ever in our lives. It's a new thing for me. I just turned 26 and I'm just starting to hit the point where I have new relationships to my memories, where suddenly as I'm maturing, I'm going, oh, that's what happened. And I'm in a deep state, um, a constant process of forgiveness right now. I feel I've 
so much forgiveness for myself and for my parents and for friends and for all the things that I didn't understand because our view is so small as a kid and then as we get older it just starts to expand and expand and expand and with that we have the power of reflection to where we can use that expansive knowledge to the past and suddenly things that seemed confusing to us as kids can make more sense and so through the process of making room a lot of things about my childhood just made more sense and I felt the need to call my mom every couple of days crying, apologizing hmm. for all the things I did as a kid. Wow, wow. You know, I realize that you're quite young, but when you speak this way about the forgiveness, it seems to me like you're quite wise and that there's an old soul <laughs> coexisting with the young beauty. Um, I did want everyone to be aware that um, in terms of the trajectory of your career for the immediate year or two, I was amazed that you're going to be playing Billie Jean King well, in not, Battle of the Sex. Well, that's not, don't, no. that's not, <laughs> that's why I was wondering. Oh, I don't it's know not definite? I'm, it's not definite. I apologize. I was jumping onto all the details I was coming across because I loved the idea, yeah. but I will let that there one go. There was also an article that came out yesterday that said I'm the highest paid actress, um, that I grossed $275 million. So don't believe what you read. No, no. But this one, um, I guess I wanted to believe. I don't care about the grossing. I would love to believe I made $275 million, <laughs> too. So here we go. And is the Todd Salons film that? That I completed. That's OK. Todd Salons, who some of you, I hope, know Welcome to the Dollhouse, among others, and Happiness. His new film, Wiener Dog, has you with Danny DeVito, Ellen Burstyn, Julie Delpy, Greta Gerwig. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. I'm not sure what I can really say about it other than our hero is a wiener dog. Um, he's number one. Wiener dog's number one. We are all supporting characters to wiener dog. Um, and it kind of just follows the life of this, this dog, this sort of, I think maybe the dog was supposed to be better behaved than it turned out because the, the dog we got was not very well behaved. So it's a misbehaving dog now. Um, and, and it's life. The life of a dog. So basically, wherever the dog is, that's the scene that you see. So there's a lot of us in the movie, and a lot of us don't see each other because it's just wherever the dog is. Okay, uh, I'm reminded of the line uh, was it W.C. Fields, never work with children or animals. And here we've got back to back. You've got a co star who's a child and then a co star who's a dog, but I think it's yeah. working out just fine. I'm fine with it. <laughs> and Basmati Blues. That sounded really interesting. You did that in India? Mm -hmm. Is that, that's apparently scheduled for a sooner release, if I understand correctly? It's an independent, so I'm not, I'm not on that track. Someone just usually emails me and goes, there, it's going there, and you go, great. Um, yeah, I did an independent musical in India. Singing, <laughs> dancing, India. It's about genetically modified rice. It's also a love story. Donald Sutherland plays my plays the villain. Donald Sutherland. Yeah. One Scott Bakula plays my dad. I'm sorry, who does? Scott Bakula. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, for me, a, a last question, because very soon we're going to watch the movie. If I understand correctly, Room was a 59-day shoot. Is that correct, or something? I think like it that? was 49 days. But even 49. That's that's a very, very long shoot. And I was just curious, how 
does someone like you, an actor, and by the way, you play this part with a, an utter lack of vanity and so much emotional truth that I, at moments, was wondering, how is this actress doing, tapping into whatever it is? How do you emotionally protect yourself? What do you do for over 40 days in order to keep your own sense of hope and buoyancy alive? Well, you just have to make boundaries. <laughs> you understand that, that playing a character like this is like handling toxic materials, and so you have to be very careful um, as you're handling those materials and know how to dispose of them properly. Um, I recently became scuba certified, and it, I know, this will make sense. Uh, it, it became an incredible analogy because um, you can't just strap on a tank and jump into the ocean. You have to um, make a plan ahead of time, and you have to know exactly how far you're going. And the longer you go, like the further down you go, the shorter the amount of time you have down there, and the longer you have to take to get to the top because you have to off-gas, otherwise you just explode. So that analogy came into play very much with Room, where I was able to really communicate with the crew and set boundaries for everybody so I could sort of go down as far as I needed to go, and then I, but there was only a certain amount of time I could be there. And so the camera and everybody else was aware of how much time we had allotted for me to be down there at the bottom of the ocean. And when that time was up, I trusted Lenny to sort of give me the tap that we were good and I could slowly make my ascent back up to the surface. And then you do other things, like I would go to karaoke every night and just sing a song. Um, or I would just draw a line down a sheet of paper and put my name and my character's name and, and write down all the things that were me and all the things that were her. So that any time I started to go like, oh, I feel so lonely, I could go, mm, no, that's Ma, that's not me. And I know why, because I have this list right here as to all the reasons why I'm not lonely. Because I've got a lot of people in my life, I've got like two care packages at home, I've got a cool drawing my friend just sent me, I'm not lonely. Um, so you just have to be very aware. It's exhausting because you're giving so much to this character and sometimes I feel like someone like Ma can feel like mistletoe on a tree. I really love mistletoe, but you know, it sucks all the nutrients out of the tree. It really, it kills it. It's like a virus that eventually kills it. And so when you're playing a darker character, you understand that it's almost this, this appendage on you that's taking the life and nutrients from you and you have to make an agreement with it as to how much it's allowed to take and make sure that you shake it off at the end wow. and have a very clear idea as to who you are. I think having a clear sense of self is, is vital. Well, you obviously have learned a great deal and have been able to master this beautifully. In some ways, today was the beginning of the uh, official award season because the Gotham Award nominations were announced this morning from the IFP, and I was not in the least bit surprised to see that among the Best Actress nominees was Brie Larson for Room. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have a feeling that's gonna continue, and, and I'm so grateful because tonight, Brie Larson has to be somewhere else in about 20 minutes, and we decided to therefore switch the order, but you're about to see a film that for me illustrates a line I'm fond of quoting to my Columbia students, the limitations define the possibilities. 
And I think that you have risen to the occasion magnificently. Thank you for joining us. Thank this you. Evening. Good to see you again. See you again. Thank you. Enjoy the film. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92YOnDemand.org.